Welcome back to the channel. Today is our Q&A from October 16th, 2020. And we talked a lot about jazz theory using different sounds on dominant chords. We talked about Darius Tarafenko and his great theory book. We talked a little bit about George Russell and we talked about a lot more. So thanks for being here. Make sure you're subscribed if you're not already and enjoy the Q&A. We'll see you in the next video. How do you experiment with different scales when improvising? Um, okay, so I guess there's two kind of answers to that question. Uh, one is kind of like a practical, like you're trying to use different colors on a dominant chord. Like, for example, you could use the altered scale or you could use a diminished scale. And they're very similar, but different. They have a different colors. So what I would do in that case, if I'm experimenting with that specific thing, um, which I think is the most relevant thing to experiment with in terms of playing, quote unquote, functional harmony, is... Uh, to say, okay, on every dominant chord, I'm gonna play this scale. I'm gonna use this scale. So first you're gonna to have to identify what that is, what the color is that you're gonna to wanna to try to use, whether it's altered or diminished or whole tone or something else. Uh, and then you just kind of plug it in, plug and play, kind of go slow. You know, if it's a medium tune, go slow. One, two, three, four, you know, that kind of speed. Hello, Carl. Uh, good to see you, man. Um, so that's one way on like a tune, like picking it, plugging it in 100%, going slow, making sure you know how to use that dominant chord, uh, that dominant uh, resolution, and you've practiced all the resolutions. So then you just go through and you just improvise in those bars. So no, not in the two bar, two bar, or not in the five bar, but just on the five chord and play that thing, that sound that you wanna work on and go five, one. Just play in those resolution moments so that you're isolating it because you're trying to get it into your ear is what you're ultimately trying to do, at least from my perspective. You're trying to get it into your ear so you can hear it and play it. Um, so you're trying to externalize that sound and get used to it and be able to call it up as a memory and be like, oh yeah, that sound, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear altered. I want to hear diminished. I want to hear whatever, whole tone. And then so you do that. And then if what you meant was something else, like how do I use different sounds when improvising or how do I use different scales and just try to like create that sound an exercise that I like to do and my students will verify and tell you that they maybe it's kind of a, a, a it's hard is to do all of the sounds practice improvising with all the sounds of a certain parent scale so a parent scale is major harmonic minor harmonic major melodic minor whichever order you want to think of them, but there's those four parent scales, which are seven note scales that involve whole steps and half steps, right? So in those parent scales, each one has seven modes. So we are all familiar with like the modes of the major scale and you can experiment. Okay, I'm going to play only major. So just play major, Ionian. Then you can play Dorian. Then you can play Phrygian. Then you can play Lydian. Then you can play Mixolydian, et cetera, et cetera. But the other three also have modes, right? They don't they all have names, but the names is not super important. Uh, what's more important is being able to hear the sound. So I say, okay, we go to melodic minor usually after major. So what I'll do is just play, play like a fifth on the piano and I'll say, okay, improvise something that sounds like the second mode of melodic minor. So that would be like a sus with a flat nine is what that sound would be. And so what I'm saying is like, if it says C seven sus flat nine, that's gonna be B flat melodic minor. All right, so you'd play B flat melodic minor over that because it's the second mode, but you want to emphasize C, F, G, D flat because those are the notes that are in that sound, in the, in the 
arpeggio of that sound, right? So I would go to that. And then so we say, okay, do that with that and say, okay, now play, I'll place the C again and say, okay, now play the third mode melodic minor, play the fourth mode, play the fifth mode, but from the same root, from the shared root, because um, that gets you thinking about each sound as a separate sound. And I like to think about them as sounds, you know, it's really easy to just kind of get caught up in like the theory of it and whatever. And like, oh, I got to do this, this. And you play all the major, you think of like even just the major ones and you think you play all the major modes in a row or something like in an exercise, but you don't know what that sound is like. You don't know how to use the sound and you don't know what, how to like make the sound. So how do you make it sound Dorian? How do you make it sound Phrygian? You got to practice improvising. Like, how do I make it sound like that? How do I get that Miles Davis on Sketches of Spain Phrygian sound? Like you have to either transcribe or you have to experiment around and figure out like how do I define that on the trombone I think it's really important so we do that now think about different scales you know there's all the four parent scales and then there's um, all the symmetrical scales like whole tone chromatic and then modes of limited transposition of course that's what Messian called them uh like the diminished scale, the octatonic scale, which is the same. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's all these augmented scales and all different kinds of things. Um, you can look at Jamie Abersold's scale glossary. I'm not a huge scale person. I think that that's enough. That's enough scales for me. I want to I wanna think about sounds and tensions and music. I don't care about scales. Uh, even though my students will say I ask them to play scales, like, which you do, I don't care about scales. How is virtual music school going? Do you feel anything is different? taught? That's a good question. Um, we're actually more or less in person, at least some of the time. Uh, we kind of have a hybrid situation at UNT where the students are coming in for lessons um, and we do some ensembles in person. So, um, but getting back to Aditya's question. Um, so things are rolling along okay. You know, we're doing the best we can. We have um, some projects coming up finally. Uh, some recording projects that we're going to do with our ensembles and uh, we're getting ready for our jazz trombone day which is november 21st kind of recording some things for that getting ready for all all of that so um everything is going well um but i can still answer your question about virtual teaching versus in-person teaching because um We've been doing a lot of virtual teaching, and the main thing that happens when you move from virtual or from in-person to virtual, in my opinion, in terms of the way that um, like it might change in terms of the content or in terms of how you teach or how you learn, is that it's, it, all of a sudden it becomes way more out of the teacher's hands when um, you when you do it virtually, when you're teaching virtually, when you're learning virtually, it's way more on the student to take advantage of the situation, to actually learn the things, to do the work, put in the time, put in the, put in the effort. Uh, we have less, you know, there's less in-person connection in terms of like, hey man, you really need to like take this seriously or like, hey, you need to work a little harder. That kind of stuff all disappears. Um, it's much easier to work on the what than the how because of the internet connection and so what do i mean i mean like it's easier for me to say okay play through the modes of melodic minor and to check that off as a box than it is for me to say man play the melody of body and soul but you know play it more expressively is it going to translate across the internet it might not right so it kind of makes a weird transition in terms of like what you can talk about online versus what you can talk about in person um 
But it doesn't mean you can't work on it. It just means you need to take extra steps because the technology is there. Like if you use clean feed or use some different things to uh, do the audio, you can get a really nice thing. But most people just go through Zoom and it's kind of crappy. And I mean, it works and you can kind of get the gist of it, but it's super compressed and everything. So um, it's tough, but it's really so much on the student to take advantage of the situation. So if you're a person that's very self-reliant, you can do it very super well. If you're a person that really needs your teacher to like get on you, it's not so good. Um, it allows you to go a lot faster in certain kind of ways, especially in like a class environment. If you're learning like a theory class or something like that, like you can kind of go through the check boxes, you know, but that playing with other people's kind of struggles and, you know, but I don't think the ideas of what the things are you need to learn really change, whether it's virtual or um, in person. The thing, the way around it has been for me, at least, if you record separately, like before the lesson, and then together we listen to a high quality recording, even if it's just on your phone, it has dynamics though, you know, it's better than Zoom. So if, you, if I can listen to it and we can talk about it in real time on your lesson, that's another way, a really good way, or it could be a video too. We could watch it together. You could upload it to YouTube and we can watch it together. And, and like talk about what's going on in, in there, that's super effective, or do both, like play it in the lesson and then watch the video together or listen to it together can be a pretty effective um, uh, way to, to do that with your teacher. So if you're doing virtual lessons, you might suggest that, that maybe they wanna um, actually work together on watching videos together and listening to audio together and stuff. So anyway, so it's easy to get focused on the what rather than the how. Any book recommendations for jazz theory? Opinion on George Russell. Um, well, my opinion on George Russell is that he wrote really interesting music, and I, I dug into it a little bit when I was in college at Eastman. George Russell is cool. He's not my favorite trombonist, but he writes really interesting music. Doesn't mean he's not a very interesting composer. Um, you know, he's coming out of that third stream thing, which is cool. Uh, I mean, JJ wrote some third stream, st third stream stuff as well. But I don't have that much of an opinion on George Russell, really, other than he wrote some interesting music. Um, jazz theory books. Um, I mean, look, you can get as many books as you want, but you have to learn it yourself through experience. Uh, that's what I recommend. So if you can do this, if you can learn the modes of major, the triads and seventh chords in major, do the same for the other three parent scales, you're gonna have a pretty good understanding of harmony. Um, if you can spell all your chords up to the 13th diatonically, that's gonna help you. Um, and you'll see like where all those different chord symbols come from, whether they come from major, whether they come from melodic minor, harmonic minor, harmonic major, any of those, you know. Um, the book, you I mean all tunes kind of work similarly, right? Like it's, it's all about voice leading and functional harmony or it's about modes and changing modes you know there's not too many there's not too many different ways of of writing music you know it's either shifting modes or it's totally atonal and and the things are unrelated intentionally so i mean there's a book called the jazz theory book i mean there's i like um my favorite theory book which is kind of technical super nerdy uh but i like it a lot darius tarafenko who is a teacher of mine from eastman wrote one called um it's, a, it's the only theory textbook he has. Darius is spelled D-A-R-I-U-S-Z, Terefenko, T-E-R-E, 
F-E-N-K-O. So his book on jazz theory is probably the most comprehensive. And one of the more interesting things that, that's in there is that there's a uh, tune, what does he call it? Tune model. So that most tunes fit into like one of these 14 models of tunes like AABA or blues or whatever. So that's super interesting. And he talks about a lot of things and relating it to set theory and um, it's, it's comprehensive. So if there's one book, I would go to that, but it's a little high level. So if you don't have like a basic music theory understanding, it might be a little difficult and a little above your, uh, above your head. But if you know about seventh chords and triads and substitutions and stuff and diminished, then, you know, his book is going to be right up your alley. I just, I really think that the theory is the last thing you need to worry about. Yeah, sure. Spell the name again. Darius Tarafenko is the author. I don't know what it's called, but it's a jazz theory textbook. Um, D-A-R-I-U-S-Z Tarafenko, T-E-R-E-F-E-N-K-O. Darius Tarafenko is his name. <clears throat> I will go back on Facebook and add the, a link to it in the in the comments after we get off the chat here or off the stream. But yeah, that's the name of the book. That book is good. But I mean, j the jazz theory thing is, if you learn piano, you're going to learn it kind of automatically by having to spell chords. You know, the more piano you can learn, the better you're going to be at improvising on trombone. So I always have the students, my students learn piano. I always have them um, playing tunes on piano, even if it's just really slow. You know, it's about playing the harmony, about seeing the voice leading, about the flow of all the harmony, man. And I guess I'm just a harmony nerd. It's all Lucas Pino's fault. Go tell Lucas Pino that it's his fault. He won't know what this is about, but it'll be funny if you if you do do that. One of my one of the most important teachers that I ever had, a hundred percent. He opened my eyes to a lot of things. We he talks about the relationship between improvising and classical music and jazz music, and how you can kind of combine them together. And we used to we used to improvise um, like sonata form, rondo not not rondo forms, but yeah, sonata form for sure, and. Um, fugues we would try to write and improvise fugues which was like super hard but even just the process of like trying to con conceptualize what that would be like is is a really interesting learning experience so it's worth it check out his book even if it's a 50 bucks or whatever it's a textbook so it's going to cost what a textbook costs but it's uh, super interesting i mean he was when i was in school he was putting this book together so i have all the like handouts that he was putting together when he was putting the book together before it was a book. So that's what I have. I don't actually have the book, but um, that's that's got all the stuff we were talked about in our class uh, about jazz theory. But, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to relate Western theory and jazz because it's not, it's not European music. It's black American music. It's not, it doesn't, you know, like there's different aspects to it that, you know, it's sort of like Bach, but not, you know, it's like, yeah, there's these relationships but you don't really need to understand Western Western classical theory in order to understand jazz theory. A hundred percent, not tr not true. You know, like Western classical theory. Uh, I'm gonna get in trouble now. But Western classical theory, in my opinion, overcomplicates things because, like, you know, one thing that they get hung up on is the Tristan chord, right? If you've probably heard about that Tristan chord, but it's a half diminished chord. But there. Um, Sometimes people get caught up in like the spelling, 
which is interesting to think about, right? Like they're caught up in the spelling of something, meaning like what flats and sharps were written down versus like what it sounds like. Because I always, when I'm writing music, I write it so that it's easy to read. I don't write it because it like accurately reflects the chord symbol if there's no chord symbol on the part. Like if I'm writing a big band chart, like it doesn't, it doesn't correlate all the time. Like if there's sharps, there's sharps, there's flats, there's flats. But if it says D flat seven, it should be a, it should be a C flat, not a B natural. But at the same time, it's more about how it sounds to me, ultimately. So if it's a half diminished chord, it's a half diminished chord. It doesn't really matter that it's spelled a different way. You know, it's still like pizza is pizza, even if it has this topping or that topping. I don't know. Maybe that's a terrible analogy, <laughs> but anyway, let's not go down this rabbit hole of uh, jazz theory. But anyway, Darius Terafenko, great book. I learned so much from him about that, but just seriously, like don't even get a book. Just go and investigate modes and scale and diatonic scale patterns up to the 13th in every parent scale and every key. Do it on trombone, do it on piano and you're going to have a pretty darn good understanding of what theory is and it's just all representing these different sounds so that's all these chord symbols are is representing sounds in a shorthand you know so that you can read it quickly that's all it is so don't rely on that use your ears think about it as sounds and absorb the sounds you know if you think about seven times four that's only 28 you know, 28 sounds. Yes, there isn't 12 keys, but it's the same sound. Uh, but thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for supporting our competition. Please send in if you're a trombonist. Can't wait to hear you. And yeah, we'll catch you all real soon. So stay in touch, okay?